We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 14 if you want to go there. And uh, we're looking at a series called Bad Faith and kind of looking at the things that we can place our faith in that do not save us. Um, now this morning we're going to be looking at popularity and heritage. Uh, what is the popular religious idea of the day? Um, and, and following that may not be your best option. And then sometimes we trust in family heritage. Now uh, this last week, my niece Claire, who was just singing, uh, she went on a hike, or maybe this was two weeks ago, and she proved, though her last name is Benson, she has some Katsorki in her. Um, and uh, she slipped and fell and landed and hurt herself. And um, her mom was affectionately known as Crash Katsorki for a while. Um, and uh, she got her driver's license, and that was just, that's just part of our family heritage. We're, we're a little bit clumsy. If you trace it back to my dad, uh, he's one of those guys, he works in a shop, but uh, he, he, he would hang red flags on things so that he wouldn't hit his head on them again. Um, so that's just something that in our heritage, we, we managed to get that. We get the clumsy gene. Um, and there are certain things that you can receive from your family, right? One of those things is that, that you cannot receive from your family is salvation. Um, salvation is something that you only receive from the Lord. And so one of the things we're going to see in this passage is that we have a tendency to rely on things that don't actually save us. And one of those is family heritage. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in, is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Now, I have a list of some things on your handout, and if you want to pop that open, uh, you have the convinced believer, the unbeliever, and the falsely assured Christian. And when you look at a convinced believer, they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they respond with repenting and following Jesus. And then their life is a process of demonstrating lasting and growing fruit. Uh, they experience, Christians, uh, convinced believers experience conformity to Jesus' image. It's not, over, it's not overnight, but over time, we find ourselves living more and more like Jesus. And convinced believers remain in the faith. Uh, and that's not to say there w couldn't be a season of where you go and you do something rebellious and then the Lord brings you back. It's not to say that can't exist, but you remain in the faith. And the other thing that I would say about the, the convinced believer is they're not perfect by any means, but they're growing. And I proved that on the handout because I got my Corinthians mixed up. Yours says first, it's actually 2 Corinthians 3.15. But they're perfect, not growing. And then you have unbelievers. This is somebody who says, I'm an atheist. I don't believe that God exists at all. Or they're agnostic. They say, God exists, but I don't think we could know him. And if we could, uh, there's too many options. Uh, we were talking about a friend this last week who their major hurdle, that they're coming closer and closer to Jesus, but their major hurdle is how could he really be the only way? That's something they're having to overcome. Uh, unbeliever could have a different belief system, uh, one of many different belief systems that exist out there. Um, and then they could be indifferent towards faith. They could say, yeah, that's good for you and okay, but well, that's not really my thing. Um, and then you could some, there could be an unbeliever who's actually hostile towards faith. And they look at faith and they go, this is bad. If we could just get rid of faith and this, um, this, uh, you know, this fairy tale God up in the sky that people need a crutch to rely on, we'd all be better off. Um, and then the falsely assured Christian, they're Christian without Jesus. They say things like, good people go to heaven. They rely on their own good works. And heaven, the idea of heaven is a place where you get to hug grandpa again. It's not a place where you get to see Jesus and have relationship with him. But it's this comfy, cozy place where you get to hug grandpa again. Um, and, and, and good people go there. They rely on the family faith. 
In other words, they, you know, I, I shared a story of a friend last week who he, he said when he was signing up for the military, he was filling out the form and came to the religious section, and he said, I didn't know which box to check. So I called my dad, and I said, hey, are, are we Christian? And dad said, yeah, you can check the Christian box. They cite rites of passage. They cite things like, I was baptized when I was an infant, or I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was eight years old. I didn't really understand what it meant, and there's no way I would have told mom and dad that I didn't want to pray it, because that would have been really weird, but I prayed it that one time. They cite things like, uh, you know, I was baptized at a young age, and uh, I, I did all these religious things. I attended summer camp, and I did all these different rites of passage. I'm a Christian. But they're ignorant to the true Christian faith. And what we find within the United States is that that section there, falsely assured Christian, uh, makes up about 30% of the population. And there's something like, what, 300 million people in the United States, so you do the math. That's a lot of people. And what we're going to see is that this is really nothing new because the Jewish people of Ezekiel's time, they were going through a very similar problem. They were falsely assured Jews. And they actually cited a lot of the same things. And what we're going to see is that they're going to, the, these, the elders uh, that, are, that are exiled in Babylon, they're going to go to Ezekiel and they're going to ask him some questions and Ezekiel is going to answer their questions based upon what God says to them. So that's the context of this. Verse 1, it says, Some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me. So these are the popular people. You don't get to be an elder without having some sort of you're, you're popular. People look at you and they say, these are the influential people. Um, if there were talk shows or, or uh, uh, late night hosts, these people would have been on those shows uh, at that point in time, right? They were the popular people of the time. So they come to Ezekiel and they sit down before him. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter of the view of the multitude of his idols. In order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me, through all their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces from all your abominations. So the elders, as they sat before Ezekiel, God informed them that these men had set up idols in their heart, um, which put a stumbling block right in front of their faces. And the idolatry in Jerusalem was openly, uh, the idolatry in Jerusalem, as we saw previously, was openly displayed. But here in Babylon, it's more subtle. It's internal rather than external. But these men, just like the elders that were in Jerusalem, the elders that are exiled in Babylon, who, who are speaking to Ezekiel here, they have idols, but they're not as upfront with them. They're more hypocritical about it. They don't outright say we're following idols, but they have them set up in their hearts. And what's interesting is these elders, they came looking for answers about what God was doing somewhere else with someone else. So they come and they say, what is God doing with those people over there in Jerusalem? You know, we're fine, but what about them? And God says, never mind someone else somewhere else. First things first, what's going on in your heart? 
He says, you're Israel without Yahweh. You could be Christian without Jesus. These were Jews without the God of the Bible. Your heart is not filled with me and my love, but with idols and fake love. And so the popular people of the time, they, didn't, they, 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 they claimed to represent God, but they didn't know him. And so if you just follow the popular religious thing of the day, that's a dangerous thing to do when it goes unchecked against the word of God and the character of God. <coughs> Pardon me. But the popular people of the nation were Jewish without the God of the Bible. You know, if they were going to fill out the religious box, you know, if they had to answer that questionnaire, they would mark Jewish. But they didn't know God. Verse 7 through 11, we see that God's people have lived aimlessly and become unclean. Uh, when you hear that word unclean, you could think a lot of different things. But the idea of clean before God was that you're going you're gonna to come out of the muck and the mire of sin and selfishness, and I'm going to change you, I'm going to wash you, I'm going to make you something new. And that's what God's people were intended to be. But they had lived aimlessly and become unclean. His heart was to bring them back and make them righteous. Verse 7, for any of the house of Israel or the immigrants who say, who stay in Israel. And when he talks about immigrants who stay in Israel, this is a resident alien in Israel. So this is somebody who wasn't Jewish by heritage, but who had accepted Israel's ways and was responsible to obey God's law. So he says anyone who is from Israel or someone who has accepted uh, the Jewish way of life and, and become uh, Jewish in that manner, who separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart, puts before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. I will set my face against the ma that man and make a sign and a proverb, and I will cut off from him, I will cut him off from among my people, so you will know that I am the Lord. But if the, but if the prophet has prevailed upon to speak a word, it is I, the Lord, who have prevailed upon the prophet." And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people, Israel. They will bear the punishment of their iniquity as the iniquity of the inquirer is, so the iniquity of the prophet will be, in order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves with their transgressions. Thus they will be my people and I shall be their God, declares the Lord." Okay, so that's a little complicated. Let me explain what's going on here. What he's saying is he's saying that an Israelite or an alien dared to presume that, that on God uh, while harboring idolatry. If they came to him and they said, uh, I'm fine, while they're, while they're literally uh, worshiping somebody other than him, God would answer in judgment. And he would make an example. Um, and, and the example was that he would cut them, these people off from him. God would respond with actions, not words. In other words, the prophet wouldn't, shouldn't respond to such a person, um, but they should look on God's, God's actions that follow. Uh, he said that he would not respond through his prophet to the inquirer that was harboring idolatry in his heart. Therefore, if the prophet did give an answer, it meant that he was a false prophet. This is true of Ezekiel's time. The clause, I, the Lord, have per persuaded, or excuse me, persuaded the prophet, is, uh, it's, his, it's his way of saying, uh, <laughs> this prophet isn't actually speaking for me. 
He's speaking on his own behalf. And in, in this case, the prophet shouldn't give an answer to this person. So if a false prophet of Ezekiel's day received a word to give to an idolater, it would be deceptive and it would lead to destruction of both the prophet and the one who was consulting him. God would hold both, in, both individuals responsible for their sin and would punish them accordingly. And so what God wants to do is he wants to bring his people back and make them righteous. This means he'll need to clean house. Um, we just did our spring cleaning. I threw a bunch of stuff away. And this is similar to what God is saying here. He's saying that if you're harboring idols in your heart and you come and you're looking for an answer from me, uh, you don't actually want me. You just want maybe an easy life or whatever it is you're trying to get from God, um, he, there's going to be some house cleaning. And this is definitely what he does with the nation of Israel in, this, in these circumstances. Now, if you haven't been with us and you don't know what's going on here, uh, the, the Jewish people have been, have been rebelling against God and his authority for over 300 years. They have been fighting and fighting and fighting with God. The, the, God's intention was that they would be his people, that they would know him, that they would represent him, that he would dwell among them, and that people around them would come to know the God of the Bible through this nation. But they had rejected that over and over and over again and gone their own way. And now he's saying, I'm going to clean house. But I love the way that he says it. He said in verse 10, he says, they will bear their punishment of their iniquity as the iniquity of the inquirer, so the iniquity of the prophet will be. In other words, both the false prophet who give this person a comforting answer and the person who longs to stay with their idol, they're going to bear the punishment of uh, their, their hard heart towards me. And then he says, in order that the house of Israel may stray may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves with their transgressions. Thus they will be my people and I shall be their God. You, you get his heart in that verse. In other words, the point of the punishment, the point of the discipline, the point of what, what this nation is going through was so that they would no longer stray from him and no longer defile themselves, um, but instead they would move away from their idols and what idols bring, which is damage to them and other people, and, and, and they would actually be God's people and he would be their God. But the popular thing, the popular religious idea of the day uh, was for you to maintain your idols and to find the prophet, the person who claimed to be representing God, that made you comfortable in your idolatry. That was the popular religious idea of the day. Not follow God, not, not submit to him, not seek relationship with him, but find the religious person of the day who will say, you can keep doing what you're doing. You, you're fine. And so there's great danger in following the popular religious idea of the day when it's not checked against God's word and his character. And what he says here is that the person who wants to remain in idolatry and doesn't want to have a relationship with God and the prophet who assures them that they're fine to stay there, both of them are not in a good spot. And ultimately, they're going to experience God's judgment and punishment for being in that place. Why? Because God loves them enough to move them away from that life and that way of thinking and back into relationship with Him. 
So then these elders ask, they end up asking sort of a question. Uh, and what we see here is that they, they say, what about the faith of our fathers? Doesn't that save us? And then, it, so verse 12 says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut it off from both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could deliver themselves, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. And so he's saying, you know, I understand that you're Jewish, and I understand that you have this heritage, but if, if you're unfaithful and you don't want to follow me, it doesn't matter who's next to you. You could be next to the most righteous person on earth. You, your dad could be the most righteous person on earth uh, so far as following God and, and, and submitting to him is concerned. It doesn't save you. And if you look at these three men, Noah, Daniel, and, and Job, these were men who overcame adversity in a righteous way. They were surrounded by difficult things, and they overcame, righteousness. They overcame adversity in a righteous way. And so the people look at them, and they say, well, we have relation with them. I could, I could, I could tell you how I'm Jewish and how uh, my, my heritage is like Noah's. I could tell you how I'm Jewish and my heritage is like Job. Or I could look at one of my contemporaries, Daniel, who was exiled in Babylon, and we could say, we have Daniel, and his faith will save us. The modern-day person might say something like this. My family's been Christians for generations. I'm a Christian, too. Shouldn't I be saved from sin? I checked the box, Christian, on the form. Mom and Dad said I should. I'm Christian. I prayed the sinner's prayer and invited Jesus into my heart when I was eight. I didn't understand it, and I would have never not prayed it. That would have been way too awkward for me to tell Mom and Dad I don't get it. I don't really know who Jesus is, and he certainly doesn't impact my decision-making, but my entire family are Christians. I am too. I've jumped through the Christian hoops. I have the certificates to prove it. Look, I was baptized when I was nine. Uh, I did it because mom and dad said it was a good idea. Look at my t-shirt collection from summer camps. I've done all the religious things you're supposed to do. I'm a Christian too. My family checks the Christian box and so do I. Doesn't my heritage save me? Don't those rites of passage save me? And the answer is really clear here. It's no. Not if you don't know Jesus. Verse 15. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they, de they de depopulated it, and, I be and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of, because of the beasts, though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Or if I should bring a sword on the country and say, let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it. Even though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I should send a plague against the country and pour out my wrath and blood on it and cut it off from man and, from, and beast from it. Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They can only deliver themselves by their righteousness. 
The faith of our parents and grandparents does not save us. Doing the Christian thing because grandma does the Christian thing does not save you. Doing the Christian thing because mom and dad do the Christian thing does not save you. The faith of our parents and grandparents does not save us. It can be a faithful guide when lived with transparency and grace, but it cannot save us. I look at my own story, and on my mom's side, my mom is a Christian. Her mom and dad, both Christians. My grandpa was somebody, uh, my, my mom's dad was somebody that I didn't know well. He died when I was young, but he was a large part of, of helping the Christian radio station get founded in Reno. Um, he, he was involved with youth and uh, flied mo flew model airplanes with them, and, 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 and his faith was, was clear and evident. My grandma had a prayer journal, uh, you know, thick as a tree, and, and it was just full of prayer after prayer after prayer of this person and that person. Her faith was so clear. You go back a generation on her side, and my, my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather, their faith was so obvious to me. Um, they didn't just do Christian stuff. They knew Jesus. And on my dad's side, my dad and, and, his, and his dad were our first generation believers. They were the first in their family to come to a saving faith. And, and their faith was, uh, is, is, my dad would tell you his faith is still growing. He's still learning things about God. It's evident that he is a convinced believer. And I grew up in that atmosphere. I grew up in an atmosphere where everyone around me was Christian. And I lived a period of my life where I thought, I must be Christian too. But all I knew were the cliches. All I knew were the, the words you were supposed to say, the actions you were supposed to have. I didn't really want to say them, and I didn't really want to do them, but I knew them. And if you'd have put a form in front of me, I would have marked Christian. But did I know Jesus? And then God actually broke into my life and there was enough failure and enough trying and enough failing and enough rebellion that I realized I didn't actually know him. I had an idea of what his gospel was and I had an idea of the fact that I needed a savior, but I didn't know what it was to walk with him. I didn't know what it was to follow him until he finally broke me down and showed me what relationship with him was. And so I would have cited rites of passage. I would have cited family heritage, but I didn't know Jesus. And you know what I was? I was a really sloppy witness. I was somebody who said, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. And then I would say hateful things and I would do awful things. And I, you know, I was just a terrible witness because I didn't actually know Jesus. And I think a lot of times that's the Christian that outsiders look at, the person that checks the box but doesn't know Jesus. And that is a very unappealing faith. I would not sign up for it either. I don't want to tell you things like summer camp is bad. I think summer camp is excellent. I've taken kids to summer camp. I don't want to tell you things like your kid couldn't pray the prayer at eight years old and actually know Jesus. There are certainly cases where that genuinely takes place. I don't want to tell you that the rites of passage are all bad. But if that's what we cite, when somebody says, you're a Christian, what's that? How do you know you're a Christian? Well, I did this and I did that and I checked the box and I did all the stuff. Those are not good answers 
to are you a Christian? The answer to are you a Christian is I know Jesus Christ and I walk with him daily. I know the relationship that I have with God the Father through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead that gives me new life. And I have experienced new life. And I did those things. I was baptized because I love the Lord Jesus Christ and in obedience to him, I wanted to proclaim his name uh, was now my name. I wanted his heritage to be my heritage. And so I was baptized. It's not that those things are bad, but if they're what you cite to say, I'm a Christian, and you don't know Jesus, they don't mean very much. You could say they mean really only deception. And the Jewish people of the time, that is largely who they were. They said, but look at our, fa look at our heritage Look at Noah, look at Job, look at my contemporary Daniel. We do the same things they do. Our hearts aren't after God, but we try to do the same stuff. I mean, we put on the facade and, and we look Jewish. But we don't really know this God you're talking about. Instead, we have an idol. And this idol, we, we, don't, we don't put it out in front of everybody for them to see. I mean, that would be ridiculous. We, 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 I mean, I've got a Jesus fish on my car. I look good. But if you make your way into my home and into the secrets of my heart, you'll find out it doesn't really mean anything. Verse 21 and 23 through 23 here, we see God cares for his people and will do whatever it takes. Sometimes that whatever it takes is not what we want. But God will do whatever it takes to redeem, renew, recreate, and restore them to relationship with him, whatever it takes. Verse 21, For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beast, and plague, to cut off man and beast from it? These, and those four have been repeated over and over through uh, Ezekiel. Sword, famine, wild beast, and plague. This is what he's going to bring on Jerusalem. Yet behold, survivors will be left in it who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Behold, they, will, they are going to come forth to you, and you will see their conduct and actions. Then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem, for everything which I have brought upon it. Then they will be comforted when you see their conduct, for you will know that I have not done it, uh, that I have not done in vain whatever I did to it. He says, I'm going to bring something on them that is. This is rough. I mean, I'm not just going to clean the house, I'm going to tear it down and rebuild a new one. This this house is so. It's so, it's like the thing sitting over here on this property over here. You guys looked at this thing over here? You just need to tear it down and start over. And that's what he says he's going to do. I'm going to tear it down and start over, and they will be comforted. 
when I do it. Because they'll know that what I do, I don't do it in vain. This isn't, this isn't for my vanity. This isn't so I can feel good. This isn't so I can look okay. This is because I care about them. And I'll do whatever it takes to bring them back into relationship with me. And in the end, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God doing whatever it takes to save us and make us his own. That's the ultimate expression of God doing whatever it takes. You look at Jesus Christ, the eternal God. If you look at the scriptures and you see how Jesus is described, read Colossians uh, chapter 1, and you look at how Jesus is described, and you see that this is the eternal God who created everything, and everything was made for him, and everything was made through him, and he holds everything together, and he, he's God. And he says, I will take on the likeness of human flesh. Now, sometimes we think we're gods, but we're nothing like Jesus. And, and so he says, I'll take on the likeness of human flesh, and I'll walk among you, and I'll show you exactly who I am. The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. In bodily form, we got to see all of who God is in Jesus. He loves us that much that he would make himself that known to us. And not only does he love us that much that he would just make himself known, but he'd take the steps towards the cross to die on our behalf. This is God doing whatever it takes. Here we see him doing whatever it takes, and, and the punishment falls on the people. But when Jesus went to the cross, he did whatever it took, and the punishment fell on him. He says, I'm going to bear this for you. And you're not going to go through what you deserve, but I'm going to take it. I'll do whatever it takes. And then he's raised from the dead. He's buried, and he's raised from the dead through the power of God. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, I'm not going to just leave you in a place where you, can't, you don't have the power to live, but I'm going to wash you and cleanse you and make you brand new, and you're going to live totally different because my spirit and my presence will dwell on you. In you. This is God doing whatever it takes. And you see the heart of the father. The heart of this father or mother, as Tammy shared earlier, who this parent who looks at his child and he sees and he sees his child, everything's out of whack. Just everything. He looks at his kid and, and, and he's he's hurting himself, he's hurting other people. He just keeps getting farther and farther from his parent, this child. And this parent's heart looks at his kid and he says, I'll do whatever it takes to put him back in relationship with me. Whatever it takes. He's done some messed up stuff. And, and, he's, and, he's, and he's hurt others and he's hurt my heart. And it crushes me to see him this far away from me. And he doesn't deserve this but I'm going to go get him. And that's what Jesus does. He says, I'm going to go get you. I know what you've done. I know how far away you are. I don't need you to clean yourself up. I'm going to come get you. I just want you to trust me. It's the ultimate expression of God doing whatever it takes to bring us back into relationship with him. 
And so my question this morning is, do you really trust in Jesus and his saving work, or is it something else? If you were to look at the list on the top of that handout, and you were to circle the ones that, most, that you identify most, what would you circle? Good people go to heaven. I did the rites of passage. My family's Christian. What would you circle? Because the convinced believer understands the gospel of Jesus Christ and how God has moved towards them and how they didn't deserve it and how they didn't earn it, but God loved them so much that, and, and wanted them so much that Jesus Christ did whatever it took to bring them back in relationship. And the convinced believer responds by repenting and saying, I'm no longer going to move away from God, but I'm going to follow Jesus. And then as the life of Christ shows up, they find themselves demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit of God. They look and live like Jesus. And they experience conformity to, to Jesus' image. And it's not perfect, but they remain in the faith and they're growing and they're growing and they're growing and they're growing. That's the Christian experience. If that's not your Christian experience, then you probably have a popular version of Christianity that is not biblical. And you're falsely assured. So my prayer is that you would know the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe it. That you would hear the heart of God longing to have relationship with you and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't trust in your family. Don't trust in the rites of passage. Don't trust in the popular religious idea. Throw all those out the window and say, I want to know Jesus.